0: This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Banana omelets, banana sandwiches, banana casseroles, mashed bananas molded in the shape of a British lion rampant, blended with eggs into batter for French toast, squeezed out a pastry nozzle across the quivering, creamy reaches of a banana blancmange, tall cruets of pale banana syrup to pour oozing over banana waffles, a giant glazed crock where diced bananas have been fermenting since the summer with wild honey and muscat raisins, up out of which, this winter morning, one now dips foam mugs full of banana mead, banana croissants, and banana kreplak, and banana oatmeal, and banana jam, and banana bread, and bananas flamed in ancient brandy pirate brought back last year from a cellar in the Pyrenees, also containing a clandestine radio transmitter. That's how Thomas Pynchon described the banana breakfast in his densely encyclopedic 1973 novel, Gravity's Rainbow. And it's clear that the man has bananas on his brain, but perhaps not nearly as much as the bruised and spoiled synapses of Lieutenant Detective Christian F. Bigfoot Bjornsson, whose appetite for the Yellow Crescent sneaks nightward across the borderline of simple hunger and into the lawless landscape of horny melancholy obsession, which... you think about it. Isn't that a preoccupation both depressed and thirsty? The mood of inherent vice as a whole? Further, after the melancholy big sleepisms of the seductive opening scene and the twisty-turny plot mechanics of Doc pinballing from Pipeline Pizza to Aunt Reed's phone line to Brunch with Dina's rhymes with penis to learning another lesson in the long, sad history of L.A. land use before taking a ball bat to the head after being on the losing end of Jade's Pussy Eater special, don't we deserve a break with the funniest stretch of film in all of Inherent Vice? Well, that's what our host thinks anyway, as he takes another bite of old Bigfoot's favorite chocolate-covered fruit snack before diving straight in.
1: Yeah, I don't know how I feel about this.
0: It's,
2: you know, it's not ice cream. No. <laughs> but it's not bad.
1: And I'm sure, and I'm sure everyone listening is gonna love hearing mm. that noise in between you know? sentences. But I suppose I should, <laughs> I should explain what's happening here. If one thing has been made abundantly clear in the course of this podcast, it's that you cannot, cannot, cannot have a conversation about Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice without addressing a very specific subject. That hippie-hating mad dog and renaissance detective, Christian F. Bigfoot Bjornsson. In my opinion, there is no funnier, freakier, or more fascinating character in the film as his funhouse mirror-stretched nostalgia and melancholy and longing for times and love past are quite simply the thematic soul of the film, writ large across his stony, chrome magnum face. And additionally, if you're going to talk about Bigfoot, and we have to talk about Bigfoot, there's one thing you have to address. Chocolate, covered, frozen bananas, which myself and my guest are currently munching on right now as professionals. And that's where we are today, in what has been the number one with a bullet most asked for scene amongst Increment Vice guests. And joining me on that journey through oddly sexualized frozen fruit treats today is someone I just could not say no to when she asked for this sequence. She is the brand and editorial manager for Netflix film, the force behind CinemaFanatic.com and OldFilmsFlickr.com. The creator of November and Jesus, how cool is that? And if you don't know what that is, what are you doing listening to a show like this? As well as hashtag a year with women, in which, in which she spent a year only watching films written and or directed by women. And is the social media force behind at old films Flickr on Twitter, which is one of the only justifications for Twitter's continued existence at this point. The one, the only... Staring at me above a microphone while holding a frozen chocolate-covered banana, Mariah Gates. Hi. Hello. Oh, Lord. And I forgot the most important thing. I'm so <laughs> sorry. We're, I, I forgot. Pertinent to the scene that we're going to discuss today, which does not just involve blowing bananas. Mm-hmm. You are the creator of Benicio Del BenicioDelTakeMeTumblr.com. Oh, it, he, I got that wrong. Yeah. I got it wrong. Yeah. Help me out. It's
2: Benicio del Take Me Now. Tumblr. dot com. <laughs> it hasn't been updated in a while, but I, um back in the height of Tumblr, you know, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, two thousand eleven, mm-hmm. I had a lot of tumblers. I think I have like maybe fifty tumblers, sub tumblers. I have a lot <laughs> of interests, and I made a lot of tumblers. And one of them was a Benicio del Toro, um, Tumblr. I'm trying to remember what he must have done at that time that made me obsessed.
1: Well, whatever the case may be. <laughs> I, like I mean, I was
2: always obsessed since like. Traffic at the very least, but um, something in the mid to late, like last decade, he was in something that like reignited. But well, now I have no idea what it
1: was. Before we go down that cul de sac, <laughs> I feel like that's an appropriate thing to mention because would we would would the kids call this a thirsty scene? Is it, this is a thirsty? I ep- think this so. is gonna be a thirsty episode. I think so. I mean, we're both munching on these frozen bananas. <laughs> um, <laughs> but i don't want to forget benicio i don't want him to get lost in the shuffle so i think it's important that we mention that you are also thirsty for benicio del toro oh, yeah. that know, needs to be documented he
2: gets he gets better looking with age too like the more salt and pepper he gets you're like yes
0: <laughs> yes <laughs> also
2: there's that do you remember that like um paparazzi video where he was at cha- the chateau marmont with with terrence with malick terrence malick but the guy didn't know it was terrence malick that <laughs> it was like my favorite thing ever
1: the most amazing short film Ever made are the expressions shared between Benicio del Toro and Terrence Malick, when Benicio immediately begins smirking, realizing what's happening. Yeah, Malick is in a panic, and the camera guy has no idea what the hell's <laughs> happening. It has no idea that at that time the Bigfoot of cinema is standing right there. Yeah, We're, well not bigfoot bjornson. Yeah, the, but they were like The Sasquatch no, of Cinema no is standing photos. right there that before was, him smirking. That was smirking. That was
2: back when the only photo you could get of Terence Malick was that one with him the big smile on that The big grinning hat. like Wikipedia yeah. shot. Yeah, and it's like what the hell. So good.
1: It's funny, just before we started recording, I told you one of the things about increment vice is we never stick on topic once the scene plays. We're not only, we're like five <laughs> minutes into this and we're already talking about TMZ and Terrence Malick, you which know... is, I think, a record for the show. <laughs> Get us back on track. Let's let's rewind. Let's okay. go back. Let's go back to 2014, 2014, December 2014, which is right before you launched your A Year With Women. Yeah, this, this is one, was, of the la- this this one of the last was, movies you watched.
2: One of the last movies directed by men I watched in for a year.
1: Let yeah. me ask you, how did it treat you first time so, out?
2: I actually thought almost... Five years ago to the date, I looked it up.
1: That's right. I saw
2: it on 12-12-14 in 70 millimeter at the Cinerama Dome. Same. Um, I wrote wrote this down because I was watching my video review that I did of it, and it was very long and rambling and had strange moments with my cat. But the first four minutes is me complaining about cinephiles at the Cinerama Dome. (laughs) Because there were these guys— I saw the video, and I I love I remember this distinctly. There were these guys talking about the Golden Globe nominations— and they were wrong about everything they said literally everything they said was wrong it was horrible
1: watching that video i got really confused because i didn't i didn't think it was an inherent vice recap (laughs) because all you were doing was complain these guys these assholes just don't know what they're talking about
2: yeah it was rough they they like they thought that um i wrote it down whiplash was that guy's first movie i'm already forgetting his name um, Deeming Chazelle's first movie, and I was like, okay, no. And then they couldn't remember Ava DuVernay's name, and they thought Selma was her first movie when it was her third movie, and I was like, I'm going to punch both of you in the face. Like, just shut up. This but, is humanity you know, great. That's, that's award season. You know, everyone thinks they know a lot. They don't know and anything. so,
1: rocketing into the film, you were maybe not in the best mood, the best headspace, <laughs> yeah. the best environment. How did how did it treat you? I, how, what did you think I, first time through? I loved
2: it. Mm-hmm. I um, hadn't read the book, but I've read so many crime novels at that point mm-hmm. that, um, especially the California crime novels um, of, like, Chandler and Hammett and even, like, Dorothy B. Hughes's In a Lonely Place is a California noir mm-hmm. and um, very different from the movie, but great book. And so I really dug what they were doing with the California noir, but then also my parents grew up in the Valley. Um, they're about Maybe 15 years older than, than, um, no, more than 15 years older. Let's see, 20 years older than PTA, but like grew up in the same area as him, especially my dad. My dad grew up in Reseda. And I feel like Doc's character would be my dad if my dad wasn't an archaeologist. Like they were very similar. Your
1: dad's an archaeologist? My dad's an
2: archaeologist. Yes, he's retired now, but he was an archaeologist and he, he, um, started out in the, he, was born in 1950, so he he was, you know, in his mid-20s when the height of, like, dropout culture was still Mm -hmm. happening and into the 70s, like, you know, rock scene. And he grew up in the valley, and he lived in the valley his whole life. And my mom grew up even further in the valley, in the Antelope Valley, and she was definitely a hippie. She's done every drug that has ever... hope she's not listening, but she has done every drug that ever existed. You
1: think your mom would want to come on the show?
2: Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> maybe i don't know that she's seen this movie oh but um she definitely like lived the scene <laughs> they have a lot of very strange stories about like 60s rock concerts and like things that they saw where they played in tiny little venues before they mm. blew up
1: well question there's a lot of people who now love this movie mm-hmm. but i think that's that's a that's That's a minority of filmgoers that actually really love this movie. But even among those, there is a sub-minority of people, and that would include you and myself, who walked out of the theater the first time loving the movie. And that's not really something I've asked people about a lot, and I should, and I'm going to start with you by saying, why do you think this hit you the way it did the first time? Why did it not require the three visit, the three Mm -hmm. reviews on revisitations on Blu-ray before you were finally like, oh, I get it. It's about love and loss.
2: I think because I had read so many crime novels that, especially some of the early Chandlers, that you, like, as Chandler was writing them, he lost himself in his characters and in his worlds and they don't make a lot of sense. And, Mm. you know, he did a lot of interviews where he's like, I don't know, just just read it. It's fine. You know, um, you just you just go with the story and go where the story takes you and where the characters take you and don't expect a lot of logic Um, and it will wrap up in a nice place (laughs) and I felt like that's what this movie did and I didn't need it to make a ton of sense and I didn't need every thread to, you know, like, go all the way through to the end. Like, it was fine. I liked all the characters Um, and at this point I had seen, I still have seen every one of PTA's movies so I was a big fan of his work just in general Mm -hmm. going in so, he can pretty much do anything, and I'll, I'll probably like it because I think his point of view on humanity really aligns with mine. Because um, I don't think he ever really judges his characters; he just gives you an array of the human experience, whether they're terrible people or good exactly. people or somewhere in the middle. And this movie is a great, you know, showcase for that
1: trait. And moreover, don't you think? I was in a prior episode. I was talking to crime novelist Jordan Harper. And he is not as crazy about – I got I to gotta stop really quick. It's really weird to see someone eat a chocolate-covered <laughs> banana while we're talking. Is this how it's been for you every yeah. time you've been talking? And I've just been you know? like – Chewing and sucking and it's, munching it, it's, on this. It's,
2: it's the scene. This
1: is really weird. This is weird. <laughs> this is weird, right?
2: I will i will say for listeners, it's not as awkwardly sexual as the scene <laughs> in the movie. No, it's just weird. It's just weird. It's, it's just a weird. It's like food. as I'm
1: talking and you slowly just raise the banana to your mouth <laughs> and take a bite and look at me. It's odd. It's, it's really it's odd. It's a weird
2: shaped food. It kind of looks almost like a corn dog.
1: It does. It looks like a really weird, well, like yeah. A,
2: like a bent corn dog.
1: Kind of, yeah. Well, we just, we're just not going to make eye contact for the rest of the show, okay? I think just that look might. The that might. Well, that that's making it weird for me too. Um, <laughs> but going back to it, I was speaking to crime novelist Jordan Harper about this, and one of the things that he said is he feels very alienated by PTA's movies because he says he can't understand the perspective and can't see really what the POV of these films is—the emotional POV—and um, in the first time that I yelled at one of my. My guess I just shouted it's about love baby and that's to me that's what PTA's movies are they're all about love whether yeah. it's Sydney or what if you want to call it Heart eight, Heart eight or Boogie Nights or Magnolia Punch Drunk even uh, There Will Be Blood to me it's about Daniel and his little boy mm-hmm. uh, the master my god <laughs> there's a, you know not to be crass send the kids out of the room that's just a movie where you just want to go to the two main characters and go guys just fuck just, yeah. just get it over with yeah you, You'll feel so much better. Uh, and obviously uh, Phantom Thread, but especially in Hair of are it's just about love and it's about, it's about how we love the people that I think we discover in adulthood, mm-hmm. the second families that we make and how we love yeah, them.
2: Yeah, and I think most of his movies really are about that level of connection and human connection and how you connect to all kinds of different people in different ways.
1: Oh no, you've stopped talking when I have banana in my mouth. <laughs> no.
2: This episode's um, going to be a this I was going to say also anima if we're talking about PTA things about That's love. True. Like anima is the most romantic thing I've seen all year. So.
1: That's true. It is amazing. Now, you say that you, when you first saw the film, you hadn't read the book. I don't think you'd read any.
2: I still haven't read it. Oh, so you, so you yeah, still have the book? I actually looked. have the book, but this is a weird story. So I didn't buy it. I had. Not quite a stalker, but kind of an internet stalker, and they used to send me things from my Amazon wish list, like unprompted, and it was a bit creepy. And then they would send me weird messages like, "Did you get my gifts?" And I'm like, "Can you leave me alone?" And so one of the (laughs) one of the gifts was Inherent Vice, and so I haven't read it yet because every time I look at the book, I'm like, "Oh, remember that time that guy like sent me stuff and then sent me weird messages, and I had to block him." So. Yeah. So
1: is this super weird that there's literally a copy of <laughs> well, the book on the not, desk right now?
2: That's a n- lovely hardback edition. It's not the creepy one that someone sent me from my okay. Amazon wishlist. All right. So. I was going to
1: say this episode's getting weirder and weirder with every time. No, th-
2: that's what happens when you have internet people on your show. Internet people are weird.
1: That's true. Well, you are an eccentric. We <laughs> talked about this. <laughs> yes. You are, an, you are a natural eccentric. I am. So I'm going to admit something. I, every episode, I come in with pages and pages and pages of notes and and theories and really pretentious stuff. But with this chunk of film, I really want to fly blind. Okay. And I I, I don't I wouldn't even know how to make notes about something like this because this is just such a strange left field moment. And there are, well there are two moments in this scene we're gonna we're gonna see the introduction and we shouldn't give him short shrift of Sancho Smilex, you know. Benizio they'll take me tumblr.com But the this this sequence really hinges on Bigfoot Björnson longingly, lasciviously filating This banana. This banana. Mm-hmm. This banana in our very hands.
2: The part of the reason I requested this scene is it's it's one of the moments in cinema from the last decade that has stayed with me the longest. <laughs> because I love, I actually love chocolate-covered bananas. I usually keep them in my fridge. Um, this exact brand that we are eating is the brand of chocolate-covered banana that I often buy. And when that was in the movie, I was like, did they put this in for me? Like, is this here for me? Does he know I like bananas? Does he also like chocolate-covered bananas? Is it in the book? Because I haven't read the book. Is it in the book?
1: It is That's in amazing. the book. It is far less, <laughs> far less depressingly sexual okay but it is in the book i believe that in the book there's even a sequence where on bigfoot's particular floor of the glass house and robbery homicide he has requisitioned one of those morgue drawers that hold bodies in the morgue to store all of his frozen banana treats right there oh, by wow. his desk which is sadly not in the film but uh yeah no it's in the film there is—or excuse me, that's in the book. There is nothing, though, in the book like the silent, wordless majesty of him <laughs> gagging on a that's, frozen chocolate that's banana. A great, that's
2: a great—that's a great moment because he just—he just got too far into the banana. <laughs> it's great.
1: <laughs> okay. And
2: and what really makes it, like, it's the combo because there's the—how the, the how good um, Josh Brolin is just comically— Fearless. Comically flating a banana. But also— um, Joaquin Phoenix just watching him, like the look on his face. And I, I said this in my original review of the movie, the bulk of, of the performance for me that works for Joaquin is his reactions to everything. Yes. If he, if he wasn't such a good emoter through his face, I don't think the movie would, would work nearly
1: as well. And he's an extraordinarily adept, reactive mm-hmm. actor in that this is one of those movies where the lead character is in every single scene. And so... He's constantly being asked by the film to react yeah. to the strangeness around him and to to meet it. And one of my favorite moments of his performance is the one that I think it's a, it's a moment that is very underrated for Joaquin. And that is the evolution of horror on his face as he realizes what's happening in the driver's seat next yeah. to him as Bigfoot returns him to his car. Um, and I love how, too— That's a scene like so much of inherent vice. Weirdly enough, this is a scene that works on so many different levels once you've watched it more than once. Yeah. Because the first time you see this, you're like, this is like, this is some naked gun shit. Like, this is just some weird Leslie Nielsen stuff. Like, okay, it's a joke. Like, maybe he likes Dick. I don't know. (laughs) But like, ha ha ha. And it's not until you see it once or twice or three or 14 times, depending on how the film strikes you. That you realize that this is just yet another moment of Inherent Vice working on so many different levels. And that in true pension fashion, it is wedging in this really kind of heartbroken nostalgia for for someone who's been lost.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's just working it into a dick joke. Yeah. Which is pure pension. And isn't that amazing? That's great.
2: It's the right kind of humor. you got to have like the high and the low combined.
1: Exactly. And you know what? I say we take a moment... We're going to keep munching on these bananas <laughs> and let's watch this scene together. Although, wow. re- oh, that uh-oh. was a big bite. <laughs> that was a big one. Doesn't that hurt your teeth? And I also got to say, a little bit. Um, just for people at home, like I don't want to, you know, I don't want to send the stocks crashing for this particular treat. This is kind of disgusting. What? This is kind of disgusting. No, I love it. Really? <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe, mm, yeah. It's- Do
2: you normally like bananas? no that's probably
1: I thought though the chocolate would save it for no,
2: me no you gotta like banana it's mostly banana because
1: it's so mushy on the inside folks it's really mushy it's very mushy yeah
2: it's a mushy banana covered in chocolate that's the treat
1: oh my god okay <laughs> well and, and also is this? it's gonna be weird to watch this scene while we're eating these yeah I mean but on that note let's watch this moment okay what the fuck
0: hey Sanj what's up doc I know you have no case here So if you're gonna charge him, you bet him. Otherwise, you have to let him go. Mm, Sanj, remember who this is you're talking to? That's Bigfoot Billinson. Renaissance cop. I know he is. So, what's the beef here exactly? It doesn't have much to do with your specialty, which I understand is marine law. We got plenty of crime on the high seas, Lieutenant. Okay, well, so far we have murder and kidnapping. We can work in pirates if it would make you more comfortable. Either way, it's high profile. Yeah, but um, given your history of harassment with my client, this will never make it to trial. No, I think we could probably take this all the way to trial, but with our luck, you know, the jury pool will be 99%. Hippie. Unless well, you change the venue to maybe like uh, Orange County, not as many hippies down there, you know. So who you work for Clients pay me for work, Doc. Clients pay me for work, Doc. So... Hmm. I've decided I'm gonna kick Mr. Sportello. You know, kick him. That's assault. I think it's police slang, Sanch. It means coming loose. I'll release a suspect at the impound garage. Promise? I promise.
1: Should I even should I even say what we were just talking about.
2: <laughs> I mean, you you can. I think it's on brand for me.
1: Well, we're back from the scene and I suppose let's start with Benicio. Let's not to get him out of the way like he's a trifling thing. Yeah. But let's I think we know where the meat of this episode is going to be and and I will say by the way, I don't know if it's the scene. I don't know if I'm if it's if it's some weird thing. This is tastier now. I don't know if it's some Pavlovian scene, <laughs> just Pavlovian thing, seeing Brolin do it, but it's, I'm warming up to it.
2: Maybe the bottom of the banana is tastier. Mine is definitely more banana y at the bottom.
1: See, mine's ch- more chocolatey at the bottom. Hmm. These are the kind of hard hitting conversations conversations, excuse me, that you're going to get when you tune into something like uh, Increment Vice. And I say tune in like an old man, like this is a radio show. But that said, uh, what did you just tell me <laughs> about your Benicio del Toro Wolfman post? Oh, I'm on... going to find
2: the. Caption again.
1: Again, um, th- that would be on Benicio Del Take Me Now.com.
2: So I was trying to figure out what movie it was, and it, it was The Wolfman. Um, and so I found a post where the caption, and this is t- 2010, so um, I was 24 years old. So please just, you know, keep that in mind. It says, <laughs> Benicio Del, you can go all Wolfman on me any day. That's what it says.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this This is why you're on yeah. the show today. This is this is the kind of this is the kind of thirsty content we need on income Advice. There hasn't been enough.
2: That's my brand.
1: There really hasn't been enough.
2: That is my brand on um, the internet. I also I used to you know so Tumblr changed their rules last year.
1: Oh and yeah. You couldn't have
2: full frontal, and for ten years I've been documenting full frontal male nudity in movies and TV on my Tumblr <laughs> under the hashtag dicks. Like that's just the hashtag, and I I had to save all of my screenshots to a folder and so now i have a folder on my desktop that says tumblr dicks that's the name of it and now every time i watch a movie or tv show and there's full frontal i have to just save it to the folder i can't share it anywhere and it's like i mean i guess maybe i could put it on wordpress but um at one point i had ads on my wordpress and they said my wordpress was not ad like it was there was too much you know whatever so the point is that i can't i, gotta say. I can't put them anywhere.
1: Despite not being about inherent vice at all, this is the most inherent vice conversation <laughs> I think I've ever had on the show. Which is good. Tumblr dicks, you're welcome, audience.
2: You know, they're gone now, but they were there.
1: <laughs> Let's start with Benicio. Uh, I gotta say, this is a this is a very very funny film. It might not be the Zucker brothers comedy that maybe the trailer made it appear to be and i think that's one of the reasons some people were disappointed yeah starting off that this wasn't just a naked gun or airplane film i gotta say pound for pound the introduction of sancho smilex might be the most consistently funny stretch of the entire film
2: he's so funny you're
1: gonna kick him like
2: (laughs) because he's just you know he's taking everything so literally it's it's hilarious
1: and mugging shouldn't work mugging Mm -hmm. should not work in a 2014 movie the level of capital M mug that he gives yeah. us in this film, in this scene, because the remainder of the scenes aren't super hilarious, but this beat, it's, like, it's just like punch after punch to the head. Like, I'm dizzy after watching. He's so funny. Clients pay me for work, Doc. Clients pay me for work, Doc.
2: <laughs> when he just in- enters the scene and he's like, what's up, Doc? And he just says it. <laughs> You're like...
1: But there's just this dazed so look good. on his face. There's something about his face. Like, he's not there. He's vibrating on an entirely different atomic frequency yeah. than Bigfoot or uh, Doc. And you know he, he has no idea what's going on. And that's actually – that's exactly what his character is also like in the book. Okay. That He is just on a totally different level because he's, he's usually stoned in a completely different way than Doc is. But – he just comes in, and I, I think you can attribute that to the power of PTA, that an actor of del Toro's caliber is willing to show up and make a fool of himself for about seven or eight minutes in a movie, and then he's out. That's yeah. how we see him. But let me ask you this. this is the, I guess this is not Is this a is this a thirst generating performance?
2: I think so and I think that's cuz his his hair. Is it the pompadour? But later the on when they're
1: at the diner by the beach it's oh. the, it's, the, it's the it's the yeah. He's
2: got one of the all-time great like heads of hair. Mm-hmm. It's always looked good, but as he's gotten grayer, I think I said this earlier, I'm not sure. As it's gotten grayer and silver foxy, it's gotten better cuz it's like something about that like dark black hair that turns gray that is just it's a good look. And he gonna, wears it really well.
1: I'm going to say with a mouthful of banana here, this is legit the horniest episode of <laughs> increment Advice we've ever had. I,
2: I'm, I'm glad I could set that bar, <laughs> you know? Um, That's what I'm here for.
1: Isn't it kind of interesting, though? Is this, is this a weird kind of typecasting in that this is the second time Benicio Del Toro has played a stoned and addled attorney you know? for a stoned and addled client as they try to unravel a mystery It seems to be tied to the foundations of the American dream itself.
2: My favorite end scene of a character ever is in Fear and Loathing, where he's just getting on the plane, doing the hands, and it's like...
1: There he goes, one of God's own prototypes. A high-powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live
2: and too rare to die. And I think I think it's um, I think the casting is probably a nod to that casting. Mm-hmm. It would be weird if it, if like P T A hadn't seen just, r- just randomly hadn't hated. seen it right. But I I think it's an it's a really great tribute to how funny he is when you give him comedy. Yeah, that he can really nail both those, especially opposite to really like powerhouse actors who have done a lot of comedy. Yeah, because Joaquin and well. Actually, I guess Joaquin and Johnny Depp are, you know, those actors that are always doing, like chameleons are always doing something different. And, you know, to some extent Johnny Depp has kind of (laughs) stopped doing that. But he used to, you know, like when he was great, he was so great. And Benicio can come in and just out funny them without even trying.
1: And what's remarkable about this scene is before you've seen this film. If someone was to – or before I had seen the film – if someone was to tell me, by the way, the hardest you're going to laugh in a theater all year is a three-way face-off between a cop, a detective, and an attorney played by Josh Brolin, Joaquin Phoenix, and Benicio Del Toro. Three men who, while they are incredible performers – At least in 2014, I was not exactly categorizing in my brain's file cabinet as laugh riots. Yeah. And somehow these three men who I think are very known for stony, terrifying, uh, haunting, dramatic performances, the, 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 the three of them together is like nuclear fission. They are the funniest part of this film. It's putting these three very very serious sa serious actors together in a room and just letting them make dick and fart jokes yeah how does that work it
2: works i don't know this i remember this being probably my favorite experience in the theaters when i saw it that year Mm because it is so funny from start to finish and somehow i don't know how it's hard to maintain like this kind of humor for two and a half hours (laughs) but it's Is because each each situation is so uniquely funny, and then he lets the actors breathe,
0: Mm -hmm.
2: which is really important. Like there's two different ways to do humor. I think there's the highly timed humor, like slapstick comedy, that's you know is really really tightly timed, Mm -hmm. and then there's this kind of languid, you know, just go, um, comedy. And I think I think it shows a lot of uh, PTA's trust in these actors that he was just like just go and do it.
1: One of the most, I think, undiscussed, and I don't even know if that's a word, but I'm going to throw it out there, the most undiscussed elements of what makes him such a great director is his level of trust in his actors. So much of what makes this film special in doing the ludicrous amount of research I've done for doing a ludicrous show about it in <laughs> Vice, is how many of my favorite parts of this they weren't in the shooting script. They weren't in any script. It was the actor who came to PTA and said, "I want to do this. Can we just see what happens?" The and I've mentioned this before on the show. The famous final scene of Bigfoot's where he eats the plate load of pot. It wasn't in the script. He's just supposed to steal. He's supposed to steal Doc's joint, smoke it, leave. And Brolin, given the general tenor of the film, film which he described as absolute fucking chaos, the making of. He just he pulled PTA aside and he said it's not enough. I can't just take a toke and leave. Like that's that's it. That's the that's the end of my character. Like yeah. And he kept pushing for something more operatic. He went and in the next take he ate the joint and then finally he said I just need to swallow a plate load of pot. Like I have to absorb Doc. <laughs> but that's that 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 incredibly memorable scene is not in the book. It's not in the script. This is this is Brolin bringing that and Brolin inventing that. And in fact, I think. Most, the most actor invented again. I don't even. This is a gibberish phrase that I'm making here. <laughs> the most actor generated, I think, innovations in this film were mostly brought by by Brolin, mm-hmm. because apparently, in PTA's script, which he he adapted by putting the book in one of those cookbook holders that can hold the hold a book open. Okay. he put that on his desk. And literally adapted the book page by page. Oh, interesting. Because he said that was the only way he could see the film is to make the whole book in script. And then that would and allow re- him to see what he needed yeah, and to then... Rubik's Cube into the final film. And in doing so, something got lost in translation and he started cutting huge swaths of Bigfoot's character out to the point where the character was basically a monotonous foil to to Doc, just there to make Doc's life difficult. And a quote from Brolin about this was that Paul had stripped away a lot of the color of the character from the book because obviously he's thinking of the tone of the film. He's thinking of the other characters. I don't really have to think that way. It's an interesting idea to have this kind of desaturated character come in and differentiate himself from everyone else. But I didn't particularly particularly agree. So I was like, why don't we resaturate him? Once we started doing that, we started having so much fun together, bringing back what was in the book. Once we got on set, then we just fucking started pouring all kinds of Day Glow paint on it, and it just became, it made sense. It's not like I read the script and thought, I know how to play that guy. That never happens, ever. Instead, you go through a massive torture that I don't wish on anyone. It just has to do with creating anything. I have to present this character to people as if it works. And I think almost everyone else is on the page Mm -hmm. in this film, on the page of the script. Brolin basically accepted the character, I think, I suspect, because PTA thinks he just looks a lot like Ralph Meeker, and this feels like a very Ralph Meeker role. Yeah. There's only one other man that can play this role, and it's Ralph Meeker. And basically, slowly but surely worked on PTA until he was able to make this character operatically humongous again. Mm Mm-hmm. And... I don't think anyone else in the film had to do that. And I think that's part of the magic of Bigfoot is how hard Brolin fought to make him ridiculous.
2: Yeah. And like just ridiculous enough to be great and not ridiculous enough to be out of tune with the rest of the characters.
1: No. And in fact, I would say he he is so in tune with the film that Bigfoot to me is the film. I think he's the code key that unlocks the whole film. One of the things that I endlessly go on and on and on and on and on about about the on this show is that this movie this has nothing to do with mystery and the American dream and the death of the 60s the death of the 60s is just a metaphor for losing something that you love mm-hmm. and to me what this film is about is how do you do that how do you lose something that you love how do you how do you handle that if magnolia asks us what can we forgive this film asks us what can we live without mm-hmm. and no character in this film, from Hope Harlingen missing her supposedly dead husband to Tariq Khalil missing his entire neighborhood to Doc missing his ex-old lady, no one is hurting and longing as much as Bigfoot Björnson for a decade that is now a decade gone. Yeah. The fifties are ten years gone now. And the the person the his his at least his partner vis-a-vis the LAPD, but perhaps partner in a far deeper way, mm-hmm. Vincent in is gone forever, who's never coming back, unlike some, Hope Arlingen's husband, or unlike Shasta Faye, who does come back. Bigfoot is a man who has lost everything, and for a movie that, to me, is about nothing but loss, he is the walking, talking avatar for this movie, right? Yeah. Like, he's the big, funhouse mirror version of this film. And that just kills me, and I think that's so... That's not... That's not something I think that we can credit PTA with directly. I think it's, we can, to circle back to where this began, his trust in his actors, Mm -hmm. that he trusted Brolin to say, look, I'm not just doing this because I want more screen time. There's something more to this character. There's a reason why Pension had this character a certain way. It's because he is the story. His pain is the film's pain. And even when that comes to using that pain to wantonly fillet a banana, it's there, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's there. Bless his heart, Bigfoot. And bless his heart, Brolin. I am going to, for everyone listening at home, I got to put this banana away. It's just not working out for me.
2: I finished my banana. I got got (laughs)
1: down to the very, well, now I'm going to feel insecure. I got down to the very, all right, fuck it. I'll finish it. I'm going to finish it. eat the whole banana. I'm going to eat it. It was not
2: even as long as the one that Brolin ate.
1: That's true. That's true. That was a
2: very skinny, like, frozen banana. Well-
1: that was also I get the feeling not Bigfoot's first time. Yeah. This is my first. This I've never your, done this yeah. before. Uh, you know, baby steps. Speaking of which, uh little side note Brolin in that scene, for the take for the the amount of takes that they did, is quoted as saying that they he clocked forty four bananas in one day that day that he had to eat. Wow. Forty four bananas. I don't know if that's did physically. Did he actually possible.
2: eat them or did he use like a spit He didn't
1: clarify. He Mm. just said he went through forty-four bananas.
2: That's that's
1: like that would kill a grown man, right? That
2: would. You would be in the restroom a lot. Yeah. Like your bowels, definitely, (laughs) or or not bowels, intestines, whatever. Very clean colon. You remember? I think it's your colon. I don't know.
1: Remember before we started recording, I told you there's a moment in every episode (laughs) where I go, "Boy, we sure have gone far afield from the scene at hand." When you got to colon talk <laughs> is where I think we lost it.
2: You know, the bananas keep you regular. That's <laughs> that's just a fact.
1: Again. This is the kind of thing you can learn when you listen I to Income Advice. I also
2: read that ban- uh, supposedly a banana has the same caloric energy as a cup of coffee. So 44 bananas, pl- not counting the sugar and the chocolate, w- he had the caloric energy of 44 cups of coffee that day. Jesus. That's did he sleep? I have a lot of follow up questions.
1: He did say that all the syrup from the banana from the the pancakes made him sick from the sugar high.
2: Oh no! So yeah. There you go. Yeah.
1: But I want to go back to something uh, a little bit more broad in the Inherent Vice universe, which is you're a noir person, yes. obviously. Yeah. You are the creator of my favorite time of year.
2: It's my favorite time of year as well.
1: November.
2: So good. It just had its tenth anniversary. It did. This year.
1: It did. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, november is a celebration of all things noir in guess what month? November. And if you're on Twitter, you hashtag it. You talk about what you're watching. You see what other people are watching. Mm-hmm. You learn about all sorts of noir films you never saw before. You share your favorites. Listen to your favorite noir soundtracks. It's a lot of fun. You can read books. It's almost as nerdy as having a podcast Some dedicated pho- to a movie. Some
2: people do photography. It's crazy. Yeah, it's amazing.
1: Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And I wanted to talk to you about something. And we believe me, we're going to come back to Bigfoot. Uh, But I wanted to know how you feel about Inherent Vice as a noir film. Do you see it as a noir film?
2: 100%. So the um, BAM Tech in Brooklyn did this great um, mini festival during the release called Sunshine Noir, which was all like Mm -hmm. L.A. noir, but specifically the like neo-noir era of L.A. noir. And... I think it fits so beautifully into that. I think I wish I could have gone to that retrospect. Like, I wish I lived in New York for that month so I could just watch all those movies. But it's, it's, um, I think Sunshine Noir, as they were sort of making the argument as existing, really does exist. And I think PTA has already done two films in that genre because I think Hard Eight, you could, or see, what's the other name for it? Sydney. Sydney. I almost said Seymour. Um, I think both, (laughs) I think, I think Hard Eight. Also feels like a sunshine noir, although I think that's set in Nevada. Yes. Yeah, but I think they both fit in, and I think him growing up in the valley it's no surprise that he made two sunshine noir mm-hmm. films, um, because the valley is a very weird place. And um, where was I going with this argument? Oh God, it's gone. Um, but basically, you had <laughs> Which to, is a, like a, <laughs> you know what?
1: You are not the first cast to do that, and that is a very appropriately. <laughs> inherent vice thing to uh, a place to find yourself at where you start a sentence it's really great starts to become a little labyrinthian and then you end up having no clue like, where the where fuck you I are start? but we were you were the talking about sunshine the bam noir. sunshine noir series yeah
2: and and i think that you can see a ton of these films especially in the 70s mm-hmm. at late 60s into the 70s which so making a neo noir in the 2010s that's really a neo neo noir from these neo noirs from the 70s mm-hmm. is like super like Brilliant. Um, one of my favorites in this in this genre is, um, God, why am I forgetting everything? The one with Elliot Gould—it's gone. The
1: long goodbye. Thank you.
2: The long goodbye. You
1: are talking to a man is, who has a long goodbye tattoo.
2: That's, and your avatar—that's me. You know, so that's like the—that's one of my favorite Chandler adaptations, mm-hmm. because I like the way they update it to feel seventies and to take that character and make him feel like what would. What would um, Marlowe in the 70s be?
1: Which is just morally exhausted.
2: Yeah. Although I will say that I don't think there's ever been a perfect person playing Marlowe because I don't think any director has ever captured his essence
1: properly. I would... I, would, I, I love The Long Goodbye. I swear by The Long Goodbye, but mm-hmm. I don't disagree. Yeah. There has never been a Chandler perfect Marlowe yeah. on the screen.
2: And, you know, the real bummer is another one of these Sunshine Noirs is Marlowe. The, um, the
1: the, the Warren Oates movie? No, yeah, that's Chandler. No, that's um, Chandler.
2: Chandler's not terrible. Marlowe, The it's the adaptation of The Little Sister. And it has, like, Rita Moreno and Bruce Lee and... Um, oh,
1: uh, with James Garner.
2: James Garner. It's not a great adaptation.
1: But he's a good Marlowe. Um,
2: he's, like, close. He's getting closer. He
1: looks like what Marlowe should look like. Yeah.
2: And um, I wish they did a great adaptation of The Little Sister because that I think that is his, like, most depraved novel. And I it think is. it would make a great adaptation yeah. now because you could do all of Because you the, could
1: make it now. You
2: could do all the gross things that yeah. are in the book. But another great one is... Um, Going into, when did Inherent Vice, when that was written in the late 90s, mid
1: 90s? Oh, no, no, no. Inherent Vice, uh, that was uh, that was the 2000s. 2000s? Yeah. Okay.
2: So slightly earlier than that, you had um, all of the Easy Rollins books. Mm, and, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Devil in a Blue Dress is a great a sunshine, amazing, sunshine amazing. noir, but set in the 40s. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think it, it is a real subset of noir and neo-noir.
1: Well, this is, this, nice this is actually a good time to talk about Sunshine War because this is actually a very sunny scene. Yes. So we can work that in. Um, well, first off, do you remember the other movies in that BAM series? I Tell wish. Me Cutter's I know. Way. Tell I Me think, Cutter's Way. What's I think it, it might have been. Okay. Yeah,
2: that one's so good.
1: That. That's no, a great
2: That's a great title. No offense to the movie that I'm doing
1: a show about, but Cutter's Way is my favorite Sunshine War. It's, uh, it's, it's good. It's, it's, it's perfect, even though it's the most extrud- extraordinarily depressing film I've ever seen yes. in my entire life. Um, And I also don't know why I whispered that. And it's very creepy. (laughs) Because the
2: book was right there and you didn't want to insult it. I I mean,
1: you never we have no idea where Thomas Pynchon is. He could be here. Um, What what is it about the Sunshine War? Why does that resonate in a different way, do you think? Is it just because of the aesthetic difference? Everything's blasted yellow and white.
2: Yeah, I think, and and this happens every noir member where there's a lot of purists who are like, "If it's color, it's not noir." Or if there's too much light, it's not noir. And it's like, yes and no. Mm -hmm. In the you know the original era, for the most part, were these dark urban settings, except for like um, the Hitchhiker, which if you're going to say that's not noir, I'm going to like punch you in the face. And that is a desert noir, you know. So yeah, I like to threaten to punch people in the face. I've only ever punched two people. And it was in the stomach, not the face. And did it, they have it coming? N- they both did. Okay. Um, one was successful, one was not successful. Um, <laughs> but um, the Sunshine Noirs, I will argue, I will always argue that they're still noir because, in my opinion, you have the era from which this all sprung from, mm-hmm. but that that era was capturing a mood and kind of a world um, perspective. And I think these other, all the films that came out of it still have that mood and world perspective regardless of when they're made and so they couldn't be they can be bright colored and you still have that that dark like undertone to it in mm-hmm. worldview that that's always my argument
1: i see that i agree with that i don't disagree at all i would also say just because i gotta throw it out there after dark my sweet that's another good one that's everyone a, should watch that. that's
2: a good one that's one of the best um adaptations of i'm forgetting the author's name it's gone
1: Jim Thompson. Thank and again, you. I promise we're sober. The I best, promise. We're just best, forgetful today. That
2: one's my like the second best Jim Thompson. I think I think the best Jim Thompson is Sari Noir. Mm, have you seen that? I have. You don't think that's the best one? Uh
1: well, I don't want to get punched okay. in the face. On I won't my own punch show. you in the face. I brought you I, I, god damn it. I, I brought you a it. banana. It was good. Um I would have to go after Dark it, My Sweet is my favorite like, Jim Thompson. I think it's the most successful and most Thompson. Tone accurate hmm. novel See, I or think, an adaptation I think of one of Siri his novels.
2: Noir is because of how frenetic the performance is. Sure, sure. That's my argument. Are
1: then. we having a fight now? We is might. It, or, or we we're might, totally in a fight. We might be. Oh Jesus! If but, I get it, I'll, I'll give you I'll, when 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 I walk you out. I'm gonna give you another banana. Okay. All right. Let's make this right.
2: I have to have 44. Oh Jesus
1: Christ! Uh, there's eight per <laughs> box. Um, you do the math on that, and I'll make it. will make a Ralph's order. Um, I want to go back to Bigfoot. Because we are we're just like knee deep in a series of episodes about Big, Bigfoot right now. And uh, again, he's so fascinating to me because Doc is the is the main character. And Shasta is by far the maybe the most mysterious character. Yeah. And Sanch is the funniest character. And there's you could go on and on how everyone is this and everyone is that. There's something about Bigfoot. I get that he's a he's a comic figure and he's a figure of fun. We can kind of laugh at him. Isn't he like just the most fucking tragic part of this film? Isn't there something so heartbreaking about him and hypocritical about him because he's this man who's a part of the very cultural force that that murdered the thing that he loves. Yeah. And he will do Next to nothing about it. He's gonna outsource his. He's so. He's so neutered, that he's the film. the The real story of this movie, the actual plot story of this movie, aside from aside from the booby house snatch of Mickey Wolfman, is simply long stretches of of Bigfoot laying down track to outsource his vengeance to Doc. That's that's the whole movie. Mm -hmm. Is Doc running in circles, not realizing? The Bigfoot's pushing him in those circles to essentially just kill two guys that murdered his partner. Yeah. That the LAPD sanctioned. And what what I wanted to ask you about is when you left the film the first time, you're very happy. You're one of those wonderful rare people that you walk out of the theater with any day now, blasting from the theaters. You're smiling. Oh, my God. That was an amazing film. Did you... Recognize the complexity of this character the first time out, or was it for you the first time out just like, Well, he was funny, wow, Brolin was just nuts?
2: Honestly, probably the latter. I think, um in terms of like the richness of characters, I think I focused the most on Doc
0: because
2: mm-hmm. obviously he's in every scene, yeah. and you get a little bit more of on the le- surface level, more of his transformation. Not that he transforms too much, but his like going from being in the shadows on what's happening to mm-hmm. being in the know. Um, And the other characters, you sort of have to watch it a few times to see the subtleties in their character development. He's definitely one that I think the first time I watched it, I was just like, this is so bizarre and not expected from the actor. Mm -hmm. And then it was you have to rewatch it to really see the like nuanced emotions.
1: I kind of feel like. The more I watch it, and my God, I've watched it so many times right now. Like I, I, I should be in like the DSM five. As there should be a category for what I have, my obsession with this film. More and more, I know that this is Doc's movie, and I would sound like an asshole if I, go, if I say something pretentious. Like it's truly Bigfoot's movie. Yeah, but it's kind of Bigfoot's movie. The movie doesn't exist if Bigfoot's not making move the moves that he this is. is. True. The, I would agree with that. Half of the connections that lead that lead Doc. To, to the climax and back to the car ride with Shasta are because of tracks that Bigfoot puts in place. And what I think is fascinating, and I said this on the last episode, and I'm curious your thoughts about this, what is so interesting about Inherent Vice in general and Bigfoot in specific is there is a whole sub-movie happening beneath this movie that we don't see. I think a lot of films, when a character's not on screen, they don't exist. They yeah. They just... They're, movies can be very solipsistic in that way when the character is off screen they just stop and the things that are happening off screen with them now they're not really affecting us and they're not affecting the plot but what i think about was so fascinating is every time bigfoot is off screen bigfoot is doing things that are affecting doc directly mm-hmm. we just don't see those connections but i think what's what's cool about that and it's it's something i don't know if i've ever actually seen before is and as i said i mentioned this last time He is a loser cop in that Shane Black mode Mm. of he's watched the world slip through his fingers and he's just desperately angling to be a part of something meaningful again. And all of those characters always get a case that allows them to springboard themselves into redemption. But what's fascinating about Bigfoot, and I don't know if I've seen a story like this, is he's a detective that never gets the case that redeems him. Yeah. You know, there's a great moment, which is both funny and sad, where he's at the Pancake House just shaking his head, no Cielo drive for Bigfoot. Like, he doesn't get that. And I, have you ever encountered a detective story like that before, where literally, you can only do it with a sub-character, because if it's your main character, then you have no plot whatsoever. It's just a detective sitting around yeah. not doing anything. But he's a detective who can't be redeemed by his very nature. No, he's never going to catch the case yeah the case it's going to make his life
2: interestingly enough one of the films or one of the books that this film kind of reminded me of in his character in particular is the actual book version of in a lonely place which is very different from the film Mm -hmm. there's no screenwriter um spoilers (laughs) dixon Steele is a murderer in Mm -hmm. it because the book is actually about ptsd um and how we turn men into killers and then when they get back from war we don't Turn that off in them, yeah. um, and the and misogyny, and in the in the book, the detective is the one trying to solve the case, but he doesn't he he doesn't listen to the women in his life, mm-hmm. and his wife and the character that's played by Gloria Graham in the movie, they're the ones that solve the case and um, save each other because women listen to women, and that kind of reminded me like his sort of inability to like really truly solve this case because he he's just not listening to the main people he needs to listen to um, reminded me a bit of this character except that obviously in, in the film he is the one setting all of the traps so he's not really yeah. trying to solve the case but um, he's also like a beach cop so there's a lot of similarities <laughs> that's true in, in the two stories and I, it almost makes me feel like the character in In a Lonely Place like is Bigfoot like Bigfoot is him you know 10 years later That's kind of what it feels like, or 20 almost 20 years later. I can see that.
1: I can see that. And then on the last episode, we hypothesized. I don't know if you've ever seen Hal Ashby's Eight Million Ways to Die. Mm -mm. Oh, well, this won't be nearly as funny to you, but uh, it probably wouldn't be funny to anyone except for a big nerd like me. But Hal Ashby's Eight Million Ways to Die is a story about an alcoholic uh cop who's been burned by the LAP or by the uh, yeah, the LAPD so much that he quits the force, becomes a PI, and has a frozen pastry face-off, or oh. fo- frozen snack face-off, rather, with Andy Garcia, where uh, Jeff Bridges and Andy Garcia basically taunt each other with how much they're going to kill each other while munching on pink snow cones.
2: When was this made?
1: Oh, uh, 80, 81, maybe? It was, it was 82, maybe. It's Ashby's last movie. This Studio. is, like, really Studio.
2: young Andy Garcia
1: uh baby andy ponytailed andy oh my god Uh oh uh -oh. (laughs)
2: yeah activated friends
1: something's happening across from the uh across from the the, the board like
2: young andy garcia
1: yes well imagine then oh god that's
2: like 10 years younger than godfather 3 we're
1: going so far away from the episode again Mm -hmm. but yes there is a scene where ponytailed andy garcia who's playing a drug lord is munching on a pink snow cone and as is Jeff Bridges, who's the PI, and they're both fighting for the soul of Rosanna Arquette.
2: Oh, I need to see this who is movie the, immediately. The woman
1: they both love. And you can tell that this there's no script, mm-hmm. and Ashby just told them to improv. That sounds amazing. And it's these two grown ass men improvising while eating a snow cone at each other. So like they're each eating snow cones really aggressively, like, this is how bad I'm going <laughs> to fuck you up. Look at the. It takes a big bite of the That's snow amazing. cone. Like, you like that? You like that? Huh? You like. It's really weird. Kind of oddly erotic in a way. Mm-hmm. Like very two dudes who don't like, again, the master thing where you're kind of like, just fuck. Just Guys, <laughs> just put the snook. Stop.
2: So since we've mentioned two Jeff Bridges movies. We have. I have to mention my Jeff Bridges connection. So I mentioned my father grew up in the valley. Mm-hmm. So his parents also lived in the valley. So my great, no. Yeah. His mom? No. His Grandma, so my great-grandmother
1: mm-hmm. also lived
2: in the Valley. I remember like a deep California family, like five generations You're on like the side. You were like a PTA
1: family over we've here. We've been
2: here for a long time. So my great-grandmother used to babysit Jeff and Bo Bridges. Jesus. As did my great-aunt Zay. She, like, my great-aunt Zay has the greatest stories about the Valley in the 30s and 40s. And I've been getting all these stories from her. But she also would babysit these kids because they were – I think Jeff Bridges is the same age as my dad and Bo's a little bit older. Um, and I'm like, but my dad does not ever remember playing with them. So I don't know if, if he ever got to meet them.
1: Well, I got to say, that's interesting. But that's not what I thought this was going to be. <laughs> I was really expecting another Jeff Bridges thirst. Yeah. I was expecting well, a Jeff I mean, Bridges thirst story.
2: I mean, there's that's there. I mean. Starman. Mm. He's very strange in that. I was definitely attracted to Against him. Against all odds. In that movie.
1: Against all odds,
2: he's pretty hot in that. But yeah. I was really attracted to him in Starman as a youth. Wow,
1: so. we, we could not be further from from inherent vice. You know. hey, he's in The Big Lebowski, and that's like that's like inherent vice. There that we is, go. That There's is our connection. That is basically. There's our way back. Yes, There's 90s, our track Nineties big sleep. There's our track back. Speaking of the big sleep, this film, it it's it's kind of like I I didn't think about this. Yeah. And we're gonna go again. This is we're so off our goddamn scene. I had never thought about this until you mentioned it in your your video post mm-hmm. about, which is a hypnotic post, by the way. If anyone <laughs> yeah, if anyone wants to look up uh, Mariah Gates' Inherent Vice on YouTube.
2: It goes, it goes it's a, like 14 minute long video.
1: And boy, you're all, like, we, it's a tour of your apartment. It's a tour of your, your, your hard-boiled crime the crazy, book collection. Crazy
2: cat moments. There's
1: some cats doing stuff. Like, you, have a, you have a really cool haircut. That's
2: when I had the mohawk. Yeah, yeah.
1: it was a re- but- you bring up something that I hadn't thought of. It is this is, this film is essentially it's the big sleep. Yeah, the, and the, the, the ending. The ending. Is well, that's what I was gonna say. The straight. ending is the big sleep. It's it's yeah. Bogart and Bacall in the car. Just where are we gonna where are we going? Yeah. What are we gonna do? And which also makes me think about how this is so 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 one of those movies in which the mystery does not matter. No. Because it's know, all
2: about the characters. That and great the story.
1: That great story. You know, where John Huston calls Chandler in the making of the Big Sleep to say. Hey, who killed the chauffeur again? The first body that shows up that you know he pulls yeah. Marlowe in? And that long pause and and Chandler's like, shit, I don't know, I don't know. I I don't know. <laughs>
2: like, yeah, and if you've read the book, you're you know,
1: it's no, it's, it, it's like, not in the book. I'm
2: not sure that I followed much, but I enjoyed the ride, which is the way I really felt about inherent vice, is mm-hmm. like I don't even care if I can follow the whole thing, if it's enjoyable the whole way.
1: Like, can you do a speed round? Like, do you know who killed Glenn Sharlock? Oh, I
2: am. I am shaking my head. Oh come on! No. Uh, it's it's it's
1: Adrian and then puck because oh. big because remember Doc gets hit with oh a bat.
2: yes 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 gets hit with a bat.
1: Just get out. It's just, gone. Just I've, get, I've just failed. Get, get out. i failed. Get out. I
2: failed. I'll yeah. go and take all the bananas with me. Oh,
1: yeah, which I paid for. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do. I I want to come back. I want to come back one more time. I want to come back one more time to, the trifecta of funny. Mm-hmm. Benicio Brolin, and Phoenix, and is there is there a funnier moment? Is there a funnier beat in this? I film? don't
2: I don't think so. I think this is the funniest section. Well,
1: I okay, I gotta amend that. Something Spanish to me is the most laugh out loud moment in this film. But when when you when you were watching this, did you not feel the first time? Did you not mm-hmm. feel like like Max Katie in watching Problem Child in Cape in Scorsese's Cape Fear? Uh, in that, when he's just, like, hacking and laughing. Yeah. I was the only person in the theater laughing at this movie when I saw it, and everyone was so annoyed with me. No,
2: same, same. Like, the Cinerama Dome, like, was just, like, those jerks that didn't know who (laughs) Ava DuVernay was, they weren't laughing. Like, very few people were laughing. I feel like there's a couple of times in my life where I watched a movie and I knew I was in the wrong audience. Mm -hmm. This was one, because I was the only one laughing, or a handful of people laughing, when I saw The Lobster, and it was the only one laughing. And I was like, Why are you not laughing? This is a comedy.
1: Were there walkouts in your in your vice screening?
2: Um, I don't know.
1: I had a lot of walkouts.
2: Okay. There might have been. The dome is really big. So And boy, knows? the
1: the audience was palpably angry as we were filing oh, out. They no. were like actually angry. That
2: happened, um, not not a comedy, but when I saw um I'm not there no one liked that movie except me the, the people i went to i was in a car full of people from college we were driving back to my apartment and like they were all shitting on the movie and i was like it's great what are you talking about no one that was a packed screening it was like during thanksgiving when that came out 2007
1: yeah something like that
2: nobody liked it And I was like, what?
1: It's heartbreaking. It's
2: rough when you, like, because I I mean. And then they
1: make you feel like you're the asshole because you like it, like you're pretentious for loving it.
2: I mean, there's that. I definitely got that from some people. And I was like, no, I just liked it. And the thing about films that I find, like, online discourse so annoying is that films are are subjective. And, like, there's a great um, bit in Lynch on Lynch where he talks about how, why he doesn't like to explain his movies because when he made the movie, he put in what he put into the movie. And mm-hmm. then when you come to the movie, you bring yourself to that. And so it's a different experience for literally everyone who watches his art. And so why would he explain what he did? He already explained it. He made the movie. Mm-hmm. It's up to you for it to be whatever it is to you. And I feel that very deeply, which is why like, when I do my end of the year list, I call it a favorite list because it's my favorite films, not necessarily the best films. I don't know what that means. I just know these are the ones that I that resonated with me. And I, it's always weird when you're when a movie doesn't resonate with a large amount of people but it resonates with a handful of people and especially when you're in an audience and you're like the person it works with for and the rest of them just it just doesn't work for them and it's like it's not no, no one's right or wrong in that situation but it's hard to be the one person feeling the opposite about the film
1: yeah well i will say i don't oh god i don't want to be internet guy i'm not gonna be internet guy (laughs) i was a little bit internet guy to fran hoffner on her episode and fran again i'm so so sorry i do love you so much it was so great that you were on the show i'm sorry that you heard that she hates bigfoot she hates Bigfoot. so i i I lost my cool i broke into a sweat a little bit okay but not to sound like reply guy i will say i agree with everything you just said except as it pertains to inherent vice if people don't like inherent vice (laughs) they're wrong okay well no I'll, i'll dial back i get why people some people don't like this movie uh, a former guest, Drew McGweeney, came on though, and he said that he has had people fall out of the movie in the first eight minutes. Oh wow! If you don't like that for those first eight minutes, I am done with you as a human being. Well, those first eight minutes are perfect. There's nothing to alienate you. That's true for in those for first every, eight minutes. That's
2: true for every movie though. Like if the movie doesn't get you in the first eight to ten minutes, it's like you know, this movie's probably not going to be for you.
1: But how do those eight minutes? That not I don't grab know because
2: it's this has one of the great openings.
1: I've, I've said it before cool-ass vitamin C rock and roll, or uh, can rock, vitamin C rock and roll song, cool-ass neon font. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, a really cool neo-noir setup. You've got that great, bizarre, sortilege intro narration, which is not in the yeah. book. And regardless of how...
2: That can song is like one of the all-time great 70s great? jams.
1: And did you know this is not the first... This is not the first neo noir to feature that song. Yeah. Sam Fuller did it in yeah. uh, Dead Pigeon on Beethoven Street.
2: Yeah, and it's like when it was contemporary too. Yeah, because
1: he he was making yeah. a German episode uh, of, of a police procedural that he turned into just a full-length movie, and he throws a can uh, cans of vitamin C in the beginning, same same way. But if you, how do you not like those first eight minutes? I don't. You know there are. I'm getting people, hot. I'm getting hot. I'm there, getting hot. I need a banana.
2: There are people who don't like this era of music i'm just dropping the, the, that but <laughs> the look are... on your
1: face the the, the 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 look of just like fuck it i'm done
2: it just i don't i i love 70s music i'm not that this is a huge thing to say except that if you follow me on twitter you already know this i'm not the biggest fan of 70s cinema like there are ones that i love but overall mm. i'm like eh. 70s music <laughs> is like there's so much good music in the 70s and so many like genres that you know, developed out of all this new recording technology and just technology in general. It was a boom for genres in terms of music.
1: And this this film, this film is like playing a Neil Young record. This yeah. film is a Neil Young yeah. record. In that it's got that happy, sad, melancholy, but sweet vibe of just that feeling of almost when you kind of feel good about being depressed. That just that, that blissfully, <laughs> yes. blissfully melancholic, like the first day when you feel a flu coming on mm-hmm. and you're not dead yet. You've just got that, oh, I just want to lay somewhere really hot and watch movies and not move. That that's the Neil Young record vibe, and that's the inherent vice vibe yeah. to me anyway. And I wanted to ask, since as we as we start to wind this up and go get some more bananas, um you mentioned that you know you're doing like everyone everyone's doing the end of the year list, and now we're oh, doing yeah. the end of the decade list, and we're doing the end of the the century so far list and all that. <sighs> And, yeah, I've I made one too. Even, I, I'm trying to sound like I'm so haughty and above it, and I'm literally looking at mine for Bright Wall, Dark Room right now. Yeah. Does Inherent Vice fall into your best of the decade? Like if you did a top ten, so would it be in there? Be, real I, care- be, when, real, be really when careful. I, when
2: I did my my favorite 15, which is what I always do, uh, mm-hmm. of the year, this one made number ten. I actually I actually looked it up because I thought this might come up because um, I wanted to show like what was it was in between. It was number ten between Only Lovers Left Alive and Ida. If that tells you, that's okay. Like Mm -hmm. my Mm -hmm. taste in films, Um, it probably wouldn't be in my end of the decade list because I did just do my end of the decade list. But I'm gonna double check what I put on it because I honestly can't remember. But I did tweet it. I am. I hate lists, but I do them because, you know, you gotta do lists. even if you hate them, it's part of
1: it's a it's a cultural hysteria that you have to take a part. It, you take know, part in.
2: and I always am like, literally every time I do one, I'm like, I hate this, but I'm doing it because I feel like I liked. I just like to sh- show people what I like. I don't know. Um, what it was 2014? So 2014, I picked Obvious Child. That was my favorite from that year. Um, it's a good but one. this this is a list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Fourteen movies so i was supposed to pick one per decade but in 2011 i picked 14 or four movie four, 14 four movies because 2011 is the greatest year of the decade in terms of films in my humble opinion probably inherent vice would shoot up higher i was looking at the list that i had for that year and there were a few films on it that i was like have i actually revisited these i don't know um, I feel like so you're
1: going a really long way to not I, no, tell no, 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 what, what I'm trying I want to say, to hear. what I'm trying
2: to say is probably depending on how big I made the list. If like I did a top 25, I would imagine this movie would hit it now cuz I've revisited it more than a lot of movies that made my end of the year lists from the decade. That said, half of the list would probably be from 2011, so I don't know. That's but a that's a roundabout way of saying I'm not sure.
1: Listeners can't see, but I just deflated. <laughs> I just slumped over like a melted chocolate-covered you know, banana. The other
2: the other issue is I is I would have to pick it over because um, I try not to have repeat directors if I can help it, mm-hmm. and I would have to pick it over Phantom Thread, and I don't know that I could do that. Are you sure? Yeah, I really liked Phantom Thread. those
1: a really thirsty. Like, movie. and I
2: couldn't put Phantom Thread on my end of the year list for that year because it didn't come to friggin Atlanta I, at the time I lived in Atlanta mm-hmm. until January, and so I didn't get to see it early enough and because it totally would have I am i don't know I don't know as as much as I love this film like something about
1: you know I felt like we started really good and now it's something it just... about the
2: poisoning in Phantom Thread like I would I would be poisoning I would be the one poisoning that would be me I Jesus feel it Jesus
1: Christ like you're gonna get yourself on an FBI watch list. I'm gonna have to like delete you this you know
2: I have once been pulled over in a, in a um, airport for having <laughs> a weird substance on my shoes so I'm probably already on a list.
1: Oh my god!
2: They had glycerin on my shoes, and I don't know why.
1: Uh oh. <laughs> um. Where edit. did the
2: glycerin come from? What did I step in? <laughs> We're gonna
1: have to edit all of this out. <laughs> like, I don't want to be a party to anything that's gonna get a, get increment vice in trouble. You know. Come on now.
2: I'm yeah. You step in things sometimes. I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh well, we've learned a lot today. So you you would poison people for love? I you think? I might. If they need to settle down, if they need to slow down.
2: You know, I haven't been in enough relationships to truly know what I would do in a real relationship.
1: Well, I will. But I
2: imagine that I would probably. That said,
1: I don't. Do you need to be in a lot of relationships to know that you wouldn't poison someone to the edge of death? I (laughs) would argue
2: yes, because I've observed a lot of relationships and the way people are when they've joined their lives together is very different than when you were a very solo hermit kind of person. And I am mostly a solo hermit kind of person. So I don't know what I if I would change or not. Mm-hmm. I don't have enough data.
1: I <laughs> don't know how much data you're going to be able to <laughs> accrue based on this episode. Yes, I am, I am
2: always um. and perpetually single. <laughs> and probably because everyone knows I might poison them. So. Yeah, that's... It's fine. That and might, I threaten to punch people all the time. That
1: might hurt your numbers just like a smidge. Like lay off <laughs> on that. Like maybe leave that part out and, like...
2: I have, at this point, never poisoned anyone, just for the record.
1: Well, there's a hell of an endorsement. (laughs) Yes. Anyway, if I'm never seen again, (laughs) uh, thank you all for listening. I was not
2: the one that bought the bananas, so...
1: That's true. That's true, but I do feel a little weird after having eaten mine. Like, I don't feel good. (laughs) It's a fine product. If anyone out there wants to go buy them, it just, oof, oof. I thought
2: it was tasty.
1: Well, you can take the box with you. Okay. Because I'm not going to eat those. All right. <laughs> oh, my God. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah? <laughs> this is fun. This is
2: a fun podcast.
1: I have to ask one more thing okay. before you go. One question that I was asked when I was starting this by another writer was, why do people who love this movie keep coming back to this movie as much as they do? You can love a movie and you don't rewatch it a billion times a year five times a year whatever however many times a year you come back to this there can be plenty of movies that you go oh god yes oh my god i absolutely adore uh laura or i you know god cutter's way i love cutter's way but i can't watch cutter's way all the time because it, it breaks my heart but there's something about inherent vice the people who like inherent vice seem to always come back to inherent vice often over and over and over again is it like that for you
2: I will say I watch Laura every year, sometimes multiple times.
1: So, Again, she's not <laughs> answering my question. <laughs>
2: um, I feel like I've probably rewatched this one in the last five years four times. So not in 2015, obviously, because I didn't watch any films directed mm-hmm. by men. So I think I've come back to it once a year, every year. And part of why I keep enjoying it is its setting. I love the Southern California setting. And I think it's one of the best crime films in the Southern California setting. Really, I will, I will, I will say that. And there almost a lot no of one
1: focuses on the crime stuff. With well, this film. I
2: mean, it's not the main point, I think, mm-hmm. of the film. But if I think it still fits as a crime film, mm-hmm. like I don't think you can divorce the crime from the film. And um, I love watching crime films. Obviously, yeah. create an entire internet holiday around crime fiction. Um,
1: Which, by the way, you don't get enough credit for. You know, no one att- so we're gonna stop really quick. <laughs> Mariah Gates, old at Old Films Flickr on Twitter, this is the woman who made November. You animals, when you enjoy yeah, it, you everyone know, should send her like a check for like three bucks that, or something. That
2: first year it was just me in the back of my house watching <laughs> movies. So
1: is that what inherent vice means to you? Is um, that what it is to you when you think of it, you think of it as like, you know, I think of it I always think of it as this is just a movie about loss. This is a movie about what it is to lose. Whatever it is that you care about, whatever it is that you love, you know, if in- Inherent Vice is all that you can't insure against, then for me, Inherent Vice is time mm-hmm. and what time takes. But the cool thing about this show, is as, as I've told you before, is being able just to talk to really interesting people about what this collection of themes and ideas mm-hmm. means to them. And for you, Inherent Vice, what does it mean for you? Is it, is it just, it, it's a cool-ass 70s crime film. Yeah,
2: that's what it is to me. It's a great neo-noir
1: with with an absolutely for you anyway delightful frozen chocolate snack yes which
2: what else can you ask for in the movie
1: that said as 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 we as we leave the audience today if you are lucky enough to meet my guest miss mariah gates (laughs) and she offers you any kind of food dish (laughs) or pastry Probably you know what? Don't eat it. Just say, "Hey, I'm full. I just had lunch."
2: You know, I just had a party last night, and I served eggnog to a whole bunch of people, and no one has died.
1: Well, <laughs>
2: <laughs> yet.
1: Yeah, and I would like the phone numbers of all of the people that attended, <laughs> please. But on that, note, yeah, I- again, if you if you meet this 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 nice lady, just just keep keep the food out of it. <laughs> keep food out of it, and stay safe. Okay, stay safe out there. On that note, thank you for coming today.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for coming and talking about this amazing, amazing Sunshine Noir. Thank you for having this snack with me. I broadened my horizons a little bit. It was
2: good. Uh, I liked it. Well. I'm a fan of this particular frozen treat. I'm
1: happy that you're happy. And I I got the brand that you liked.
2: It's a great brand. Mm, It's got a monkey on it.
1: My throat feels weird now. It feels very scratchy after.
2: Maybe you're allergic to bananas. My brother's allergic to bananas. What
1: was that? Oh, God. Jesus. He can't eat them. Well, um, as I get ready to slip into some kind of shock, <laughs> uh, I'm going to leave, leave you all today. Mariah Gates, thank you again for coming in today. Thank you for talking about this. Thank you for November. Thank you for everything that you do at Old Films Flickr. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'll see you next time.
0: Well, that was just about the most horny on main episode yet. Surfing from the rolling waves of Benicio's hairdo up the cusp of Bigfoot's deep-throated rama, all the way down to Myra's tumescent tumbler repository of celebrity dick. Whew! But now that it's over, what comes next? The capital M mystery still looms before us. Mickey and Shasta are still missing. And just what, exactly, are Doc's feelings for his ex-old lady? We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.